if um, you are here today and you have lost a family member due to being a veteran and he has given his life for our country, would you stand? If you're a family member that has lost a loved one today, remain standing if you would. Can we show our appreciation to this family today by giving thanks for their sacrifice? Remain standing if you would. If you have served our nation, would you join those who are standing? If you have served in one of our military branches, would you join these people in standing? We want to thank you today for serving our nation and for giving of your life so that we can be free. Thank you for that. You please be seated. I know sometimes the younger generation sometimes does not appreciate as much, but uh, I'm seeing and noticing that more and more young adults are signing up for the military more than in any other time in my lifetime. I'm seeing also, I'm a product of the Vietnam War, and I watched our veterans come back when I was in high school from Vietnam, and I watched the, uh, how our nation reacted to those men and women, and how for several decades it was not honorable to be in the service, and we did not remember those that have given their life uh, for freedom. You know, there's a time for war, Solomon says, and when good people and good nations do nothing, evil prospers. And I don't know of another nation on the planet that has given more lives, not just for our own freedom, but for the freedom of others. And I can tell you it's great to be a United States American citizen and to remember this holiday season, a time of reflection and remembrance of those who gave their life and who served our country. And we are very grateful for that. And I hope our nation never forgets. And it's great to see the honor that has been reestablished back into the, 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 our armed forces. It's great to see people thanking people for serving for no reason. They're just they're in uniform, and people just do those kind of things. And it's just great to see uh, how our nation is turning back to being a grateful nation, and I'm grateful for that. But today, we're going to talk about the subject of mourning, but it is going to be a different subject about mourning, although it'll be mourning. It'll be a sorrow, a sadness, but it's a sorrow and sadness that comes from a broken heart, a heart that is broken over the sinful condition, not only of the individual, but a sinful condition of a church and a sinful condition over its nation. And we're going to be looking at the second beatitude described for us in the passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So if you would stand with me in honor of God's word, let's read verses 1 through 4 together, and then we'll get quickly into our study. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down with his disciples, they came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Thank you, Father, for the joy and the privilege that we have to honor our veterans and to honor those that have given their life for freedom. Freedom is not cheap. It comes with a price. We know that all so well because of our faith. The freedom that we have in Christ over the condemnation of our sin and to enjoy a right relationship with you because our sins have been forgiven, is a wonderful thing. And the freedom that we have as believers was not cheap. It came with a price. And it was because of your sacrificial gift for dying on a cross, for sins that you did not commit, Lord Jesus, 
were able to stand in the presence of God, fully accepted and approved by him. It's great to know that through faith in Christ, we are pronounced today as acceptable and approved. That's a wonderful joy that we have to be able to claim and to live. And I pray that as your disciples, we would not cheapen that grace nor waste the life of Christ on the cross by not living the lives that you've called us to live as your disciples. So use this time to strengthen our faith, to encourage our walk, and to keep us in step with your spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name, and we ask for your sake. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Let me ask you a question. How do you know your sins are forgiven? I mean, how do you know? You know, I'm convinced that there are a lot of people in the Christian life today who, who have who have come to faith in Christ. They've placed their faith and trust in him as their personal Lord and Savior. They believe that he died on the cross for their sins. They're fully believing in that. They're putting their faith, their hope, their expectation in that. Yet they walk around many times with this sense of guilt and this sense of heaviness, this sense of personal condemnation. If not, they feel the condemnation from someone else on the life that they have lived or the sins that they have committed. It's not unnatural for us in the Christian life to be stressed out over this whole concept about forgiveness. Just because we placed our faith and trust in Christ and committed to follow him as our personal Lord and Savior, and we put our faith in that redemptive, atoning death on the cross where he took upon himself our sin does not mean that from that moment on, from that moment of salvation, that we live perfect, flawless, sinless lives from then on. Right? Anybody in here been perfect all week long? Yeah, except me. I remember when I was in seminary one time when we had a study that we were supposed to do in a group study, and there was a young man, he was a little bit misguided, and he told us in our study as we were to talk about and deal in the concept of sin and to make a presentation to the class, we were talking about where James talks about sin, and he had the audacity to claim that he had not sinned a single time in the last several weeks. This is a guy who's in seminary who is preparing for ministry. And, you know, I'm not usually one to be quiet, but I did maintain my tongue at that moment because there was everything inside of me wanting to say, you have got to be kidding, dude. You have just lied. And the last time I checked, lying's a sin. And you need to confess right now and get right with God. You know, a guy who makes that kind of claim is either clueless, dumber than dirt, or is not aware of what sin really is. You know, I'm convinced today that if you want to grow a large church, you just obliterate the word sin from your vocabulary, and you don't talk about it in the church from the Bible at all. Don't raise the standard to a level where real discipleship understands the concept of sin and deals with sin not only in our personal lives, in the life of the church, and in the life of our nation. And many preachers have sort of obliterated or they have stopped discussing this whole concept called sin and sinfulness. And the only time they may mention it 
is if they're an evangelical church and they'll do it in what they call a sinner's prayer and they'll do it in a very short, narrow sentence where they'll deal with it very quickly so they can go ahead and talk about forgiveness without dealing with, I'm convinced, this whole subject of mourning, of remorse, of grief, of an understanding of what sin actually really is so that they can feel sorrow and lament for what they have caused against God and what they have cost Christ. And as a result, we have a plethora of people that are sitting in the chairs or in the pews of our churches today across this nation that give little if no regard for sin in their lives and the sinfulness of the church, much less the sinfulness of our nation. And I want, to, I want us to understand that when Jesus began to deal in the Beatitudes, that the first and the second Beatitude had everything to do with sin because the Bible says that Jesus came to preach a gospel of Repentance. It's not just a gospel of hope, not just a gospel of freedom, not just a gospel of love, not just a gospel of forgiveness, but it's a gospel of repentance. And you cannot preach repentance without talking and dealing with personal sin and dealing with the lamenting, the mourning, and the sorrow of a person's sin and sinful condition toward a holy and righteous God to where people do not measure up then to the standard of God. Jesus is not teaching the gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, but he is laying the foundational work for those who will soon accept the gospel and become his disciples. And he is defining for his disciples, after you put your faith in me, this is the lifestyle of a disciple, a follower of mine. There is a distinction between those who are following Christ and those who are living in the world. And he lines out for us, especially in the Beatitudes, the first and the second aspect about how it is to become a disciple and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He talks about in the first parable, I mean, first parable, the first um, beatitude, I'm sorry, where he talks about then the, this whole concept of coming before God broken, empty. We talked about that last week. You recognize your sin and your inability to live up to the standard. You cast aside all of your self-righteousness, all of your work, all of your claims, all of your effort, and you throw yourselves on, we throw ourselves on the mercy seat of Christ. I have nothing to bring to the equation. I have nothing to offer. I'm broken. I'm bankrupt. I'm empty. I'm, 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 I have nothing to bring. And so my whole complete dependence is on Jesus and his righteousness because my righteousness as best lived never measures up to the standard of Jesus. It doesn't live up to it. And so I'm dependent upon his righteousness and his work and my faith in that. And that's incredible. That's beautiful. The second beatitude we find is not only after we recognize that, that there is a remorse for the sin that we have committed against God. For in order to be saved, I don't only come bankrupt, empty, I bring nothing to the table, and I'm completely and solely dependent upon him for salvation, but I also need to not only recognize my sin, but mourn over my sin. And I find that very very little discussed in many pulpits, in many small groups, in many individual and personal Bible studies at all, because we want to just jump right into the forgiveness thing. And then we wonder why we have so much trouble with, with, with repentance 
and with forgiveness and with living the life. Because I'm convinced that unless you truly mourn over your sin, you've not really truly repented. And if you've never truly mourned, therefore you've never truly repented, therefore you've never truly been renewed by the Spirit of Christ, and you jump back into that sin quickly because you failed to grieve over the condition of what it did to the heart of God and what it cost Christ. So I want us to take a look at this study very, very quickly. I want us to go through two basic points. Point number one, I want us to look at the condition of blessing. In this small narrative here, there is a condition by which you and I must understand in order to receive the blessing of God. What's the condition? Well, the condition, first of all, is blessed are those who mourn. Notice the order. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, number one, let's look at the purpose that's defined by Jesus. The purpose is to be blessed. I mean, Jesus wants his hearers, he wants those that are listening to this wonderful and beautiful sermon, especially as he introduces these eight Beatitudes, he wants those who hear him and who read later on this passage of Matthew, he wants them and us to be blessed. I mean, that's the purpose for this this whole narrative. He wants God's people to be blessed. They weren't feeling very blessed. As we talked about last Sunday, they were under a myriad of traditions and legalism and and all kinds of pressures on living up to the standards that were far above and beyond God. They were man's, basically. And so they were caught in this trap of never sensing then this worthiness of living up to the standard, and they always then carried around this guilt and this condemnation that was pressing down upon them. And one of the reasons why they flocked to Jesus, we discussed last week, is that he was lifting their burden from them and showing them there's a better way, which is God's way, not the religious way of man. And he wants them to be blessed. But the concept of blessed, as we identified last week, is not. And we're going to see this eight times. And I think the reason why the the writer and Jesus says it eight eight times, I don't know about you, but I'm a little dense. It takes me more than the first time to get it right. It sometimes takes a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, a seventh time, and an eighth time. And then if it's not the eighth time, I can't get it right, I think God just shakes his head and said, well, what can I do with you, Charles? You're just a little dense. And he starts back over with number one again. Because we all have a hard time with this understanding of what is a blessed life. A blessed life, as we identified last week, is for God to pronounce his favor on us. In other words, he pronounces then over us his acceptability. Because when we live our lives as a disciple, as a Christ follower, he then pronounces his approval over us, and then he blesses us, and we then live a blessed life in the center of the will of God, doing the will of God, experiencing and enjoying the presence of God, and letting the power of God flow through us. That's a blessed life when you're walking as a disciple and allowing the Spirit of God to move through your life and to bless you. So that's the purpose, is our blessing. Notice then the paradox in the text, because a paradox is a statement that is made that on the surface seems as if it's contradictory. It seems as if it's not accurate. But the reality is it describes a truth that is very accurate. 
And the paradox is this, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. That's weird. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, you've got to understand what the word mourn means. The word mourn does not mean several things. It's easy to define a word, first of all, by what it doesn't mean rather than what it does mean. What does the word mourn not mean? Well, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean a grieving over a death. I know it on the screen a while ago, it, as we, right before I came up, there was a, a, a beautiful video about our veterans, and across the first uh, introductory line of that, it said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, and many of us, I think, have a tendency to think that this scripture is about mourning over the loss of a loved one. Now, there are other scriptures and other passages in the New Testament where God does speak to those of us who mourn the death and the loss of a loved one, but this is not one of them. It's not one of them. It doesn't talk about the mourning of a loss of a loved one. It also does not talk about, in this text, the pain that we may experience due to persecution. We're following Christ and we become persecuted because of our faith. It doesn't talk about the sadness of a job loss or the disappointment in a financial investment that's gone wrong. It doesn't even talk about the crying over what we call spilt milk. And it doesn't talk about the mourning over the consequences of sin. And I think sometimes there are people who are mourning as a result of the consequence of sin. They have deliberately, intentionally understood the will of God, and they defy the will of God. Now there are consequences to that sin. They are grieved by it. They mourn. They lament it. They're sorrow for it. And now they're mourning now the consequences of it rather than the sin. That's not what he's talking about here. What he is talking about is a godly sorrow. It is a grief. It is a remorse for the sin that we have committed against God and that sinful condition that we have before a holy and a righteous God. In other words, it is a mourning that leads to repentance. And once we mourn, we grieve over the sin that we have, we have caused God and the sin that has cost the life, the death, and the crucifixion of Christ. Once we reach that point of real sorrow, then we're blessed. But not only are we blessed, but he says we are comforted. We're going to see that in just a minute. Now, who are the people to whom he's describing here? To who is he writing to in this text? To whom is Jesus speaking to? Notice those are. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who mourn. In other words, only those who mourn will be blessed and will be comforted. If you don't mourn, you won't be comforted and you won't be blessed. As a matter of fact, he means it so strongly in this text that he says it twice in this very short sentence. When we look at it the first time, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Those means those people who mourn over sin are the only ones who will find God's approval, no one else. You just simply say, well, I've sinned. Forgive me my sin and go on. And there's no mourning. There's no sorrow. There's no lamenting. There's no grieving over your sin that is not going to receive, I believe, the blessing nor the comfort of the Lord. 
which is, I think, one of the reasons why many of us walk around with a lot of stress in our lives, because we think we've confessed the sin, but even though we've confessed it, we've, we've admitted to it, we quickly jump over to forgiveness, and there's no grieving. There's no recognition of the consequences of what it caused God and what it cost Christ. There's no weeping over our sin. There's no lamenting. There's no sorrow. Without genuine sorrow, can there be genuine repentance? Which is the reason why many of us continue to sin and sin and sin and sin and sin over and over again and sometimes even commit the same sin within minutes after having confessed it. Because if we truly grieved, lamented, and were sorrowful because we recognize what it causes the heart and how it grieves God and what it costs Christ, how can we continue to do that? Well, the question is, who needs to, who needs to mourn? Well, there, there are three people, I think, that, that it's talking about here. I think a nation sometimes needs to mourn. A nation needs to mourn. In Jonah chapter 3, we have a narrative described for us in the Old Testament passage. And you know the story of Jonah well? Don't most of us? I mean, Jonah has, has been given a word by the Lord to go to Nineveh to preach a gospel of no turning. They're just burning. I mean, God is upset with your sin. There are going to be consequences and condemnation for your sin, period. But he doesn't want to deliver the message. He goes south, takes the boat. You know the story? Yes, I believe they actually threw him overboard, and a large fish also swallowed him up, and he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish until he repented and recognized that, hey, I need to do what God wants me to do. And the fish spit him out. He took a quick shower. He made his way to Nineveh. He declared the message of the Lord. You're going to die. But notice what the passage says in John, uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. What does that sound like to you? Mourning, lamenting, sorrow. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them, they were on a fast, let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mighty to God, mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You know the, the rest of the story? God changes everything and he forgives the nation. And it makes Jonah mad, so mad that he goes and sits under a juniper tree and he pouts because he, the, the word that he spoke didn't come true. He was not happy that the nation repented. Now, there are many believers today that are not happy when unbelievers repent. You know that? And we want people to get what they deserve. But aren't you glad we haven't gotten what we deserve? But this, this is only one of many instances in which there is a nation that's in desperate need of repentance, of mourning, of sorrow. Let me ask you as we think about this Memorial Day weekend, does our nation need to mourn over its sinful condition toward a holy God? I mean, think about the condition, the spiritual condition of our nation. 
While there are some wonderful things about our nation, and I'm glad to be an American, did you know that since 1973, there have been 53 million abortions? Since 1973, 50, I'm going to say it again, 50 million abortions. That's over 3,100 a day. Do we need to mourn? Are we a murderous country? Did you know that in our nation today, there is a battle for same-sex marriage? And I think it's uh, North Dakota is the only state of all of our United States in which there's not a battle right now in the courts to legalize same-sex marriages. And it will be soon, I'm convinced, that it will be against the law for me to stand in this pulpit and preach against same-sex marriages. It's coming. We're in trouble as a nation. I'm already not being politically correct. Did you know that in this nation there is more sex trafficking now that it's become a national issue and that churches are finally addressing the issue? We're already behind the, behind the tide here on this. Did you know that pornography is at an astronomical level in the United States of America? And the number one threat, this is family day in here today, and we have children. Parents, let me tell you, the number one threat for pornography in the United States is in the home. The accessibility in the American home to pornography is for all of us to address. There is no hiding place. You can put your children in a Christian school and, and, and bring them to church every Sunday, but if they're in your home and you have access to the Internet, you know, the laws that we have that govern the airways are not even being enforced when it comes to the Internet. You talk about how our nation is in desperate need for revival. And until we mourn as a nation, I think we're in trouble. Now, as I talk about a national concept, a country mourning, but he talks about the church, the community of faith mourning. See, I think the problem with the, the country is the church. And it's not a new problem. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, notice there's a problem in the church that Paul addresses. The Spirit of the Lord speaks as he writes through the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, she is not his biological mother, but she is the second wife of his biological father. Notice what he says to the church. To the church. <laughs> and you are arrogant. This is to the church. Ought you not rather to mourn as a church? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Again, we see James in chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord writing through James to the church. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to the church, not to an unbelieving nation, to the church. Notice as he continues to address the church, be wretched. In other words, be miserable, be lamenting, be brokenhearted, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, they were laughing at sin. The church was laughing at sin. 
Don't tell me, ah, the church was wicked back then. We laugh at sin today. How many of you watch sitcoms where there's sin that is presented and projected in such a funny way that you laugh at? There's a sitcom right now about the family where there are two gays that just got married, and it's a funny sitcom, and it shocks me to how many believers watch it and laugh. How can we laugh? We should mourn over that. We should wail. We should weep. It says that we should turn our laughter to mourning and your joy, your carnal joy. This is not spiritual joy. Your, you know, your fleshly joy. Turn that joy to gloom, to sorrow, and to sadness. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The church is in trouble today, people. We're in trouble today. We have a man right here from Wichita called Matt. His name is Matthew Vines. Grew up in Wichita, went to one of our Wichita high schools. He's written a book entitled gay, God and the Gay Christian. God and the Gay Christian. And he's defending and he's presenting a biblical case why you can be gay and Christian and not repent. Well, you know what? Can you be an adulterer? Can you be a... I, you know, I, I'm not going to name a bunch of stuff. Is it, is it okay to be a gossip and not repent? Is it okay to be a liar and not repent? Is it okay to be a murderer or a thief? How can you be gay? The Bible specifically talks about the fact that, that, that it is a sin. I, we should love homosexuals and and, and we should, they have the right in the United States of America to choose their sexual preference. And, and, and I've said this in this pulpit before. Uh, they were born gay. Yes, they were. They were carnal when they were born. They had a fleshly nature, just like we had. And until they experience the new birth and the Spirit of Christ resides in them, they cannot change. But once the Spirit of Christ resides in them through faith in Christ, there is a transformation that takes place in the heart and the life of the disciple, and we follow the standards of Christ as his disciple. Or I think we have a lot of confession today without conversion. A lot of confession without true conversion. And Jesus is addressing a group of people here who claim to be followers but are not living the life of a follower. The church is in desperate need today. We have porn in the church today. I don't know about you, but it really breaks my heart when I look at Cox and I sometimes just flip to see what channels I have. And, you know, there's dozens, if not dozens, of opportunities for me to watch porn in my home. I can't tell you how many nasty ads sometimes you get when you just search Google. It's everywhere. And we at astronomical levels are seeing more pornographic enslavement and robbing us of marriages and families today than at any other time those of us who are disciples of Christ and who should know better. We have obesity, adultery, hatred, gossip, prejudice, Silence, and the list goes on. The church, I think, is in desperate need of mourning. And then lastly, we see the individual Christian's need for mourning. 
it really boils down to the individual because if the individual is not going to do it, the church is not going to do it, the church is not going to do it, the country is not going to do it. And notice what it says in Psalms 51. We have David. We know the story. He sinned with a lady named Bathsheba. He took her unto himself. It was, she was married to someone else. He committed adultery with her, and then he tried to conceal the sin. He murdered her husband, then married her as his wife because she uh, was pregnant with their child in adultery and thought he got away with it. That is until the prophet of God spoke to him, gave him a little, uh, a little story, and uh, he was exposed. And once exposed, he realized he couldn't conceal his sin. He was under a delusion. But notice what he says in, as he writes in Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Notice as we go down to verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I think we have individuals today who are in desperate need, Christ followers, for us individually to mourn, to weep, and to wail, and to lament, and to be genuinely sorrowful for our sin. This week when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin in your life, and you want to quickly confess it and then move on with your life, I want you to reflect for just a moment, maybe more than a moment, about what that sin caused and how it grieved the heart of God and what it cost Jesus in order to issue to you the forgiveness that you want and he wants to give you for that sin. So that we just say, well, I, I, I did this, forgive me, and then we move on. And we never take the time to consider And I think that's one of the main reasons why so many of us have such difficulty being victorious over sin. And I think that's why we can live and live and live and live and live with existing sin in our lives without ever giving it a moment's notice or a moment's attention or ever confessing it. We just don't fully want to reflect upon for just a moment what it did to Jesus. Because if we really understood what it did to a perfect son of God who knew no sin, who became sin for us. And when he was on that cross, he committed that heinous act of sin and he suffered the wrath of God for you and God punished him on that cross for that sin. And most of all, well, it's just one of those little things. It's not one of those big things. Well, let's define big. What's a big sin? Somebody tell me what a big sin is. What? Murder? What, do we, what would we consider a big sin? Murder? What? All of them? Are all of them sin? Well, you know, I, I haven't committed any really big sins. Mine are little sins. I gossip. I choose not to forgive someone when they've hurt me because I deserve better than that. What is sin? Is there, did Christ die for all sin? 
And does all sin grieve the heart of God? So why do we belittle some as if it didn't cost him anything and magnify others as if it cost him everything? I know it's human nature, but it's wrong. We're all sinners. And we all need to mourn, to wail, to weep. It's the last time you actually shed a tear for any sin that you committed. When's the last time? And then we wonder why we and the church and our nation is in trouble. For we have learned to excuse and to tolerate and to embrace and to laugh at and to enjoy and to use it as entertainment. And God says, blessed are those who mourn. What's the comfort? Here we go in the last part of verse 4. Time has flown. For they shall be comforted. For they shall be comforted. Notice the precedence of the comfort. For. It's an interesting word. It's a subordinating conjunction. It means that there's a causative effect. Blessed are those who mourn for. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn because. Those of us who mourn, notice the provision, they. Who is the provision for? They. They again is like the other. They alone. No one else. Only those who mourn. Those who mourn are they which will be comforted. If those are they do not mourn, there is no comfort. If you don't mourn, there's no comfort. These are Jesus' words here. From the Savior himself. No comfort if there's no mourning, if there's no sorrow, if there's no grief, if there's no sadness. For they shall be, notice the promise, those of us who mourn shall be. This is a future tense, and not only a future tense of something promised, but it's an immediate response to what we do. When we meet the condition, it's immediate response, but it's future in that it continues on into the future, as we continue to mourn, we will be, we will become, we shall be. Notice the word comforted. The word comforted is an interesting word. It simply means forgiveness. We shall receive forgiveness. He shall release us from the guilt. Isn't it great to be released from the guilt of sin? I think the reason why this young man over here has got this glow on his face is because the guilt is gone. He said to me, I spent five years in prison. And he said, I came down and made a decision to place my faith and trust in Christ. And it's interesting to watch this young man. I talked to him a while ago. He just, the guilt is gone. But we've forgotten what that's like. He's released from guilt he removes the sin. He restores our relationship with God, and he renews our heart. For if we confess our sin, 
He is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And who's the person of the comfort? Well, it's a triune work. Did you know that? Uh, The Father had to love us enough to give us the Son. The Son had to love us enough and to be obedient to the Father to meet the requirements to die on the cross, to absorb the wrath that we rightfully deserved for that sin as the Father poured all that wrath upon him for the sin that we committed so that we then could be renewed by the Holy Spirit of Christ who cleanses us and renews us. There's a washing that takes place by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that comes in and washes us white as snow when there's been mourning. I'm going to close with one very powerful illustration in Matthew chapter 9. And I'm going to close quickly with this. I'm just going to read it and just make one application and we're going to close. Matthew chapter 9. And getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic That means someone who could not walk, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, notice what he said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What's the condition of this paralytic? He can't walk. Why? It's a result of sin. It's a consequence of sin. And Jesus forgives him of his sin. He doesn't give him the physical healing that he probably was looking for, but he gives him the spiritual healing that he needed even more than the physical healing. And I think he was content with that. I really do. I think he was content with the spiritual healing. And he would probably have been happy to go home until something happened. And behold, whenever you hear that, watch out. And behold, some of the scribes and said to themselves, these are the, you know, the the religious muckety-mucks, the self-righteous. This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think it evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on heaven to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Notice their reaction. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. God got the glory. But I love that verse in verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of God, or the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sin. Who has the authority to forgive sin? Jesus. Interesting that in Psalm 32, let me just read it to you. David said in that Psalm, almost this beatitude, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice what he said in verse 3. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away, though my groaning, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. 
I then acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Some of us recognize our sin. Some of us do not. That's the first step, to recognize your sin. But that's not enough. Because, see, I can recognize my sin and walk out this door and do absolutely nothing about it and think that's enough. Well, God says that's not enough here. Jesus said that's not enough. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He didn't say blessed are those who recognize, their, who, who realize their sin. He said blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be blessed. They shall be forgiven. They shall be comforted. See, just simply realizing my sin isn't all there is. Well, once I realize it, there's some things I can do with it. I can repress it. I can just put a lid on it, walk away, and pretend like it's going to go away. But the reality is it's kind of like a ball. I don't know if you've, you've got one of those balls and in, a, in a pool, and you, you suppress the ball, and you let your hand go, and what happens? It comes right back up. And you can repress it for a while, but you know what? It has a way of coming back up. Well, you can reject it, say, I, I'm not going to receive that today. And yet you'll walk away not being comforted. You can reason it away. It's not my fault. Blame someone else or blame your environment or blame your country or blame the devil or say, I just happen to be in the wrong place at the right time. And that's not going to receive the pronouncement from God that I find favor from you and receive his smile. You can rehearse it over and over in your mind and think that's going to be enough, but it's not. What needs to happen? Repentance. When is genuine repentance a reality in your life? When I mourn. For Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. You need to mourn today? Am I brokenhearted over my sinful condition? I don't think you can have genuine repentance without remorse, without sorrow, without sadness, without heaping. So what would he have you do today? Let's pray.
Again this morning, we have the privilege of celebrating the ordinance of baptism. The ordinance of saying, I once was going my own way, but I've come into a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I want to be marked as a follower of Christ. This is my friend Zachary, and Zachary celebrates today not only a brand new life in Christ, but in five days, he's going to celebrate a brand new life. God is not only setting him free spiritually, but he's also setting him free physically, and we rejoice with that. Zachary, have you come to that place in your life where you know that you've asked Christ to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss, and is it your desire to be marked as his follower from this point on? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk. Thank you.